Welcome back, everybody. It's been a while. Well, it's been that long. You've been able to, Jay, you've been able to get to Spain and back, I understand. Can't you tell with the tan? <laughs> yes, very tan. <laughs> um, and for all that you are watching, may well already have realised, but our special guest this week is the rugby league legend and rugby union management coach mastermind that is Mike Ford. Mike, how are you? Thank you, guys. Pleasure to be on your podcast. Uh, just got back from Spain too. Ah, oh, very nice. I can see your tan as well, Mike. <laughs> Thank you. I, I take it it wasn't with Jay. You would have spotted him, I'm sure, on a under a tree somewhere, <laughs> trying to keep out of the sun. Wearing fat dress. Too hot for you. So we're going to have a bit of a, a warm up just to get started and and chat about some rugby. And I think probably the most uh, dominant thing to discuss at the moment is, apart from how well Wimborne have done this season, um, winning the, the league on many different age groups, um, but also the fantastic Women's Six Nations that's just come to a, a finish. Mm. Yeah, ma- amazing result for them. Really well done to the Roses. Never in doubt for most people, unless you're French, but, uh, you know, easy grand slam in the end for them. But, yeah, really, really well done to them. Um, I was lucky enough to, on Saturday, be at Twickenham for Army-Navy, which was a good crack. Um, lots of sick everywhere and everything like that, but it was <laughs> it was, uh, it, it was really, really good. Um, really thought the men's Navy team were going to win it, but Army just managed to sneak it in the end and not um, quite a close game for the women's afterwards, uh, 68-0 to the Army. But mm. um, yeah, it was uh, two good games, if you like sevens for the second one, but yeah, there you go. good. And did you... Um... Keep abreast with the Women's Six Nations, Mike? Yeah, I did. Um, it's always good to see um, England play, obviously, but in, in sport, any team that's on the run that they're on, the consecutive wins, um, the more the more wins they get, the more you take a big interest in it. And, you know, the, the coach at the Women's Roses um, is Simon Middleton. Now, Simon Middleton is is an extra league. We played together at Castleford with the same age. Um, he went to um, Leeds Tykes at, at the time um, after he finished playing rugby league um, and then became a coach at, at Leeds. So, you know, I, I keep in touch with him regularly and congratulated him last year on his his World Rugby of the Year Coach of the Year, um, which is pretty amazing. He's got some really talented rugby players in that squad at the moment um uh we've been uh, we had uh, James Williams from Hartbury now just signed with Bristol and he was talking about Zoe Allcroft the, the women's player of the year um he uh, roomed with her didn't he last yeah, year yeah, yeah, um and he said that that the the training standard and the and the and the standard that they all live up to in that squad is just second to none yeah, you usually get that in the in teams that that are consistently winners, you know, year on year. year. You, you look at Wigan Rugby League in the in the late eighties and nineties when they won eight Challenge Cup finals in the run, and and that came out of that camp. What you just said is the consistency of driving each other's standards. Um, 
the fear of being the first team to lose. Um, and the standards the senior players set was just phenomenal. So the growth, uh, I suppose Man United had it when they won all them t- Premiership titles and, and, you know, Man City now and Liverpool. That That's what you get. It, it's the challenge and the, and the drive of the players inside the camp. That usually is the difference. Really hoping that um, the coverage that they've had this year, which has been... Mm just so so good a standard compared to what they've had before and the um and the amount of uh, spectators they've had actually at the games is really going to drive some money in and and give Ireland give Scotland give Wales Italy all that chance to to come up to the level that England and France currently are because then it's going to be a real spectacle yeah. when there's a bit more of a level playing field big time big time I mean is some it, of the Sorry, Mike. Yeah, no, I mean, some like you're saying with the coverage, just the stuff that um, TikTok have been doing for that, you know, the hashtag mm-hmm. women's six nations and that has just been exceptional. Um, I really, really think that it's out there a lot more. I mean, to break the, you know, the, the world record for, uh, was it a Welford Road? They did it, wasn't it? Was it? Mm. Where yeah, there's the three on the two on the bounce they in, they broke the record yeah, for attendance it, yeah because it used to be down at sandy park and then welford road smack yeah it's just been brilliant brilliant for them I'm really really pleased with them and i just think it you know it's not going to take a step backwards is it it's going to keep going and keep going and they're going to keep building on it which is great but what i really really want to see is what you just touched on there is i want to see all of those particularly the home nations but then everybody else growing and it being a bit more of a level playing field because some of those score lines for England were just a bit, a bit ridiculous, aren't they? And they need to need to be challenged a, a bit more because I sort of feel like everybody just goes, oh, yeah, this is great. It's great to see him play. But everybody's just, for the whole championship, is just looking forward to the France-England game because they know that's going to be the decider. I think when it becomes a bit more competitive, you know, like look at the men's Six Nations and stuff like that, you know, it could have been anybody other than mm-hmm. Italy, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's... Uh, needs to move in that direction, I think, as quick as possible. Mike, um, there was a lot of talk about after England-Ireland had played, that England were obviously going to camp to recuperate, to train, ready for the France game, but most of the, the Irish girls had to go back to work on the Monday. Is there? How does that affect the mindset of a, an athlete when they're not just not getting we've talked about the fact that obviously the standards are always going to be higher if you're getting continual training but what happens to the mindset of somebody that that feels actually that there's a disparity in in what they've got compared to the next yeah it's a tough one i think if you were that person going back to work you you would um take it one of two ways one you take it as um you know we've got no chance of winning um this is yeah, let's get through this game and look at the next game that we can possibly win. Or you go, this is a challenge. What a challenge for me as a person, as an individual, as a team collective. What a challenge is for us to go and take on a team at a full time who are winning all these consecutive games. We've got an opportunity to test ourselves against the best. Now, we might not come out winners, but it's an opportunity to see how far we're from behind. And what do I need to do? What more can I do as an individual to try and you know, bridge that gap, even though I'm working full time, you know, and, and like Jay said, I think the unions, other unions have got to look at this to, um, it's not for England to 
you know, digress. It's not for England to, to, to go back down to their standards to make it a spectator sport where everybody has a chance of winning. England have got to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's other it's up to the other nations, stroke individuals to try and get there. So um yeah, it's a, it's the mindset of the individual uh, really to go one or two ways and in that is which environment are they in for them to think either way. Hmm. So in England you say they're kind of they're paving the way for everybody to follow. So they've got to keep improving, even though they're the best team in the world. If they go, okay, we've done really well, we can take our foot off the gas, that's going to impede the following teams. Is that is that how you see it? Yeah, and I think um, you guys know more than me in terms of uh, the, the ladies uh, in New Zealand um, that they've just appointed Wayne Smith as coach. He's one of the, mm. probably one of the best top three coaches ever. So, uh, you know, they seem to be taking it seriously. You know, they, they realise there's a gap there and what can we do to, to try and bridge that? Yeah. I mean, I was listening to Emily Scarrett talk on one of her social media platforms and she was saying one of the biggest things that has really, really like boosted them a lot forward is the amount of top-level coaches that have coached in the men's game that have now moved over to the women's game because they see it as just, you know, it is exactly the same to them and the boost that has given them has been has been immense and I think the more stuff like that happens like in New Zealand it, it, it's it's going to be only a good thing mm. I watched um the no woman no try documentary uh with Shauna Brown um uh, interestingly uh Hugo Monia's on there and he's championing the the how do I say he wants to be an ambassador to get everybody looking at the women's game because I mean, just this Six Nations alone. Um, I've been looking forward to sitting down and watching it. It's been on on all the telly, whereas before it's been difficult to see, apart from trying to find it on catch up somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, the fact that it's out there is is fantastic. It's only going to improve the game and and get top level coaches in, like you say, Mike. Yeah, I think Simon Simon Middleton um, is now you know what he's achieved. Um, with, with the roses is is phenomenal you know i think um sometimes when you're on a running consecutive run like that it can be quite difficult to get the players motivated to keep driving the standards but obviously he's doing a brilliant job because it looks like they're pulling away from everybody even further mm-hmm. so i think we kick off the first half then again want to introduce mike ford um i think it's fair to say that between League and Union, there's nothing you haven't done or haven't achieved from um, from a 20-year playing career, was it, you had in, in League? Um, yeah, about, yeah. Sorry, yeah, you carry on, sorry. Yeah, no, 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 that was, it, that was, <laughs> it was a question. I, was, I think it was around a 20-year playing career. And then moving on into yeah. Union. Yeah, I, I think, you know, um, you, you've always achieved everything but that's I want you your listeners and your viewers to understand I've achieved everything both success and failure as well it's it, it they've, you learn obviously more from failure um, and then you, when you do get a little bit of success you seem to um, um, appreciate it more especially when you realise the sacrifice you've put in but I've been lucky um, you, you look back on your life and your environment that you live in and the schools that you went to I went to a junior school where the 
one of the teachers was a Featherstone Rovers fan, Mr. Charlie Salt. And there weren't many junior schools where I live in Oldham that played rugby league, and Oldham's a rugby league town. But I happened to go to one of them. Um, not just rugby, but they played all 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 sports. And um, back in the day, I think they still do it actually. The Challenge Cup final every year at Wembley was played. Uh, there was a junior game, uh, under 11s uh, pre-game. Um, and when I was 11, Oldham got chosen to play at Wembley. So I played at Wembley when I was 11. Wow. Uh, Charlie Saul was a coach and he drove that. We played against Hull. I always remember, of course I do. And, um, and then I went to, went to senior school and the, the head of PE there was a guy called Phil Larder. <laughs> Phil Larder, for the listeners and viewers who don't know who Phil Larder, Phil Larder actually coached England's defence in the, in the 2003 World Cup. And he himself was a, at that time, played for Oldham Rugby part-time and was a full-time school teacher. And obviously he went on to rewrite the Rugby League uh, coaching manual for 10 years and then he went across to Rugby Union. So you look at your life and you go, well, you know, how many other people, any boys the same um, age or same skill set that I would possibly have, they never got the opportunities to be in them environments. Um and that's where it all started, really. So was it? Was there any union clubs up um, at where you were when you were younger, or was it mainly because obviously league is probably, or certainly historically, more um, played in the north? But was it was it more when you were growing up that you looked at the league side of the game? Yeah, I mean, rugby union wasn't big at the time in the northwest of England, in the north of England. Um, you watch Bill Bowman captain England every so often for the six, you know, in the Six Nations. That's the only rugby union you would probably watch. Sometimes Nigel Starmer Smith on Rugby Sunday. I uh, used to love that music they used to play. Um, but in, in general, you, you know, you, we were I brought up in a rugby league town, um, uh, went to rugby league schools, had a rugby league PE teacher. You know, there was, although I played a lot of soccer and football, it, it was. I was. I think you look back. You're always. I was always destined to play rugby league. Um, so I signed for Wigan when I was 17, um, and played like you said earlier. I played for, for for 20 years, and it wasn't like really when I wanted to near the end of my career. I wanted to see if I could be good at rugby coaching wise. I went to a rugby union team um, called Duckingfield in in the Cheshire League in the north of England. I went coaching the, the senior men's side there um, to see if I could coach men, really. I knew I've been a development officer with kids um, at, at various times throughout my career and stuff, but I wanted to see if I enjoyed coaching men, if, I, if they respond to me and things like that. So I coached Rugby Union for five years uh, while I was still playing Rugby League, Super League. So um, it wasn't really until, for me, for, until Clive Woodward had got hold of England and, you know, they started making, um, starting getting the wins and making a bit of publicity about the way they were playing that I took notice. And of course, when Phil Larder went there as well, the ex-school teacher, he, you know, the interest, you know, bloomed from there really. So, um, but in the days we were playing, um, Rugby League, James, they, they got paid for playing as well. And Rugby Union didn't get paid till 19... 96, 95, 96. Yeah. Um, 
allegedly. So um, a bit of boot. <laughs> <in it. laughs> um, may have been ahead yeah. of the game, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I was able to in 1990 be able to go full time. It's something I always wanted to do. I've been a I signed in 83, so I've been a prof- professional seven years, but I was never full time till 19 because uh, we got paid. Um, you were able to do that, and I wanted to try and fulfill my potential, trying to be the best I could be. So, full time. So, um, rugby union really wasn't a sport that I necessarily watched in great interest, or oh, I definitely didn't play it. I didn't, I didn't play it. So, um, it wasn't until like I said, Phil Larder went across. So why choose to go and coach a rugby union team if you've been playing league all the time? Why didn't you try to coach in the league teams? When you went it to was, uh, again, again, it was um, father-in-law was a roofer. Um, his partner was the chairman of Duckingfield Rugby Union. And the coach had, uh, were working away for three months and asked me to do some skills with them. Um, so I thought, right, okay, I will do. So I used to go Tuesday, Thursday, do skills, even coach rugby union, just coached what you were doing rugby league. And um, the coach, unfortunately for him, he never came back. Fortunately for me, they then said, well, will you coach? Will you coach the team? And I could be able. I was able to do. Because we were full-time during the day of rugby league, I was able to do Tuesday and Thursday. And because we played on Sunday, I was able to do uh, the game for them on Saturday. So I was pretty full-on in what we were doing. But uh, I certainly got the bug. I certainly got the coach's bug, the, you know, the coaching bug there, you know, kind of stuff. Um, and I reckon five years, I still didn't know what we were doing in rugby union. Because uh, it, it was such a low level... Um, I think then when I was coached in 1996, I think it, they might have had 13, 14 levels of rugby union and we were certainly down down near 13. Um, but, um, you know, I got a couple of rugby league guys in to play 10, 12 and 13 and, you know, we, we, we did really well. Um, but it was a low level. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't necessarily have to know all the laws and didn't have to know... How, about the line out necessarily, but you know the skills and running with the football and tackling, obviously, at that level made a difference. Those core, those core skills, you know. We've had you are is Mike our fifth guest? Uh, yes, yeah. yeah, fifth guest. You know, they've all said that core skills were you know some of the most important important stuff that we've been trying to build on for so long, and that it's amazing how. Even we were speaking to um, a guy called Harry Baz, who um, was just today, actually, sorry, just quickly, massive congratulations to Harry Baz, uh, friend of the uh, personal friend of mine and friend of the podcast, who's just signed a new deal at Cornish Pirates today. Um, well done, mate. But he was even saying, even now, you know, he's at you know, the top of his game and he's still doing core skills every single day and working on it and what a difference they can make, you know. How often do you see coaches that spend hours on a on a line out and don't do any of the catch pass stuff or the contact stuff and it's their downfall? But so another pattern that Michael just touched on there. So is that? Yeah, I think. I, sorry, can I just share something yeah, yeah. there? Because um, uh, most most viewers and there's a famous book called Bounce by Matthew Syed. 
And um, it's about what, how to develop the youngster, the age they acquire these skills. And um, between, you know, six and 14 is when to grab the skills. And, 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 I, and, I, and I went to, when I was coaching England, I had, um, obviously, everybody will know George, my son, he, he was playing for, he was playing for England under 18s when he was 15. And then there was Owen who was 18 months old doing the same thing, going Farrell, sorry. We're doing the same things. And um, I've obviously watched or grew up with my boys playing junior rugby league and, and what they do every every time they train and every time they play. And I've also watched the way Rugby Union do it. And I said to the chief exec at the time, I can't, I think it was Francis Barron anyway, um, I said the reason these two guys are so far ahead of other guys is because the core skills of, of them both as juniors between the ages of eight and 14 was practised on uh, both in training and in the game more often than the counterparts in rugby union. Um, so rugby league tends itself, the game tends itself at that age to do, you have to do more tackles, you have to do more catch, you have to do more pass, you have to run with the football more than than necessarily you would do in a in a rugby union game. So, um, and I said, if I was the overall guru of the rugby union world, I wouldn't let I wouldn't let um, junior rugby players play anything other than rugby league up to the age of 12, 13, because the scores the core skills that you develop then will stay with you for the rest of your life. Um, you know, I, I, yeah, you. I appreciate that even when you're a professional, you've got to carry on practicing. But um, George playing for the 18s, three year younger, he got world player of the year under 20s, three year younger. And I've tried to say is, is because his development when he was not because he obviously was a special talent, but it wasn't that so much. It was what he did as a junior that, that got him into that, that spot, you know, that, that, he would have done, in a normal game, he would have done twice as many tackles as his counterpart in rugby union, twice as many passes, catches, you know, so constantly, constantly doing the core skills, core skills, and then in the game too. So, um, anyway, they didn't listen to me. So they <laughs> <laughs> still playing rugby union rules. So. so, going back a little bit to when you signed for Wigan, you were 17. How did you end up with that, that sign-in? Um, I, so I, I, so I played a lot of soccer as I, and, I, and I actually signed for Oldham Athletic. Oh, wow. I had heard just, that. Yeah. So they've just got, they've, they've just got relegated actually out of the national, the leagues. They're in the national league next year. But anyway, um, so I had a year out of rugby. I remember Phil Larder again, giving me, uh, he said, you need to choose one sport this, this age. So I chose soccer, um, and wanted to be an apprentice and they didn't offer me an apprenticeship. They offered me a, an amateur contract, which meant I now could play both again. And I remember my dad saying, why don't you start playing rugby league again? Um, so I was playing soccer on a Saturday league on a Sunday. And the first league game back for Oldham St. Anne's, uh, Wigan scouts were there and they rang me up. And next news, they're, they're in the front lounge and offering me a contract. Wow. So... Yeah, that's how it happened. Did you give up the soccer then? Yeah, 
Um, you know, I, I always wondered if I didn't have rugby, say I just played soccer, word I would have got. Uh, looking back and, and you know, I was far more confident at rugby um, than I was at soccer. I used to go on a soccer pitch and think other people, players were better than me, whereas I went on a rugby pitch and, and didn't think that. So, um, I mean, David Platt played for our soccer team. David Platt scored that brilliant goal for England in the World Cup in the 1990 World Cup against Belgium, the overhead kick that took us through. So he was in the same team as us, um, you know, but you think could I achieve what he achieved, you know, but um, it is what it is. You, you can't can't keep looking back, you know. <laughs> so from there then, am I right from what you just said? That was a part-time signing still at 17? Yeah. You, yeah. So you, I was still at school and made my debut when I was at school. Um and then I went on a went on a junior Great Britain uh, to, to New Zealand tour, um, and it wasn't until, um, like I said, in the, in the nineteen nineties that, um, and and it wasn't a sport then even then, James. It wasn't a sport where everybody was training full time. I I took it on to be able to work full time, so uh, to, to train full time, so. I basically, um, I had I had um, a career of um, I wanted to, my dad was a plumber, so I went to the plumber that didn't suit suit with me. Um, I went to play for a team in Australia when I was nineteen. I come back, I, I bought um, a news agent, so I, I don't know why, and I did that, but I did. I bought a news agent because <laughs> I thought Ford's corner shop. <laughs> yeah, Ford's news, <laughs> <laughs> and then. And that's because I thought I could get up in early in the morning and, and do the papers and things like that. And then, you know, I could train in the afternoons. Um, and so I did that for four years. And then I thought I just ran about 1990. I just, I sold it. I just went full time where I, you know, I was, I was uh, guessing really what I did. Do you know what I mean? But I just wanted to know what it would be like if I trained every day, twice a day, say for example, but I'd, start eating the right food properly and start having the right rest and recovery. Um, and I was like, I was on my own. I was on my own. And, and then, you know, even because my dad was a plumber, he couldn't really give me the, the expert advice. And it, 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 it really did think to myself, if I have kids, you know, if I have kids and they wanted to play rugby, I, I couldn't say, listen, this is what I did and this is what I got wrong and because I didn't really have anyone pointing in the right direction. Um, and that's what I did with George and Joe and Jacob, my lads who, when, when they were in the same situation, I could point them into, in, in, on the right path. But in that day, I was just doing it on my own, my own back, really. And um, it wasn't until 95 that it became full. We started training full time every day. You know, we've got proper coaches in and nutrition's in and strength and conditioning coaches in and all them things, yeah. So we we talked on the pod before about um, uh, those players that are self-motivated. It sounds to me like, you know, you were doing everything you could to give yourself the best chance to train, get your body right, get your fitness up so that you could become a professional rather than hoping that it happens so you can give up everything else for it. Did, do you think that put you when you did become professional and everybody could train all at the same time? Do you think that put you ahead of everybody else? Yeah, definitely. I think there's two there's two areas 
that I was um, ahead of others. Where was one was fitness, one was um, I could run forever. Now rugby rugby league, the balls in play 57, 60 minutes of the eighty. So you needed to be aerobically fit. Uh, you need to have, um, to be able to sprint and, and be anaerobic and all them things. Where uh, rugby union, the balls in play only 35, 38 minutes. So I was very, very fitter than anybody else. Um, and also the kicking bit, I used to kick. Now, not for goal. I was a scrum half who, who was a tactical kicker. So, uh, again, I, di- I didn't know what I was doing, but when I used to warm up on my own, so I go down into the local track and there's a big but you can a big grass field in the middle. I used to always take a ball with me and I used to warm up chipping the ball over and you know uh, finding what well what became well they call 5022s now aren't they in rugby union but mm. what what became 4020s you know like in just kicking the ball bombs we did a lot of bombs in there a lot of spirals in there you know but I was just it wasn't that I had a plan do you know what I mean so it's just that what I used to do it all the time, you know. Um, I had to go up and back uh, before I started training of chipping the ball over, one bounce catch, chip the chip it again, one bounce back. So you used to about get about six in one way, come back, chip it up, chip it up, bomb back. Right, and I, I didn't start training until I got 12 in, you know. So if it bounced twice or a knocked on or it bounced to the left or it bounced to the right. But I figured out that if you're the ball, if you're the ball, vertical if you kick it on this end if it goes end over end right i knew it was going to bounce up you know kind of stuff you get that right so just just little things like that you did with yourself um uh prove prove really good in my position you know in terms of a tactical kicker and stuff so it's funny you look back and you think well you know you don't know if you're doing anything right or wrong you know you just you just crack on so did did you have a you say your dad didn't play so you went out yourself to, to to learn the skills. Did you have anybody else that was with you that was helping you understand, helping you train, or was it just the coaching staff that you had when you were at the club? Yeah, yeah. So it was they had a, so my dad didn't play, but I had, you know, obviously Phil Ladder was my skill teacher. So the skills bit, we used to play a lot of games of um inside a gym, a sports hall, three on three. Um and you had you had to touch the other. You had to obviously um, beat a defender and draw the next defender in and put your guy away. And he had to touch the football, the wall with the football. And you turn around, another team comes on, and you you're constantly playing three on twos and three on threes and things like that. So the skills bit, yeah, the feel bit. But on on my own, you know, the strength and conditioning. I remember Phil Ladder saying, "Get get get a pair of spikes," but it. So I did, but I didn't know what to do with them. Do you know what I mean? Kind of stuff. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah, I was. I used to warm up with them on. You know, that's yeah. no, no, no. You don't warm up with spikes. And in fact, you know, you won't. You wouldn't train as a rugby player. You wouldn't train in spikes. But back in the day, you you you, you get advice like that. But it wasn't until the late, well, the mid nineties that you had a strength and conditioning full time who give you a program. Do you know what I mean? A proper weights program where you're going to put body mass on and get strength and things like that. Um, and, you know, you don't, Mike, you don't need to run three miles every so often. You, you don't run three miles in a rugby game. You know what I mean? But you need to do, you need to go do eight 200s or 
800 meters or whatever it was, you know, with this rest time and this recovery time and you have to get in a certain, you have to do it in a certain time. Um, so it wasn't, yeah, it was like, but I just wanted to do it, James. I just wanted in my mind, I, I pretty much knew that your career is short and I didn't want to have any regrets. I didn't want to say if I would have gone full time, what would have happened? You know, I didn't want to, I wanted to, be able to experience that and, and, and in my own head think I've given give it my best shot. So what, in your mind at that age, at 17, what was your best shot in your mind? What was your, your aspiration to achieve? Um, it wasn't so much when I was 17. I, I think 17, um, so 17 I signed, uh, like, and, and I played that year when I was still at school and you get a little bit of attention, like, which has never sit well with, never sat well with me, you know, um, I, I go a little bit embarrassed and shy with that. And then, you know, two years later, I'm playing at Wembley in what was regarded as a, the greatest Challenge Cup final of all time in 1985. And then I went to Australia, like I mentioned. So now I'm playing for Sydney Roosters. And like within like two years, like I was still at school. Do you know what I mean? And now all of a sudden, um, I'm, I'm now on the verge of playing for England and, and going on a great Britain Lions tour and, and stuff. So it wasn't, what did I want to achieve? Um, I, I played for a very successful Wigan team that won quite a few trophies. And at the time as a 17, 18, 19 year old, you, you just, you just turn up to train and play and just roll with it. You know, you, you don't know anything different really. I think that's the best thing I can say until, you know, I left Wigan in 19, uh, 1988, um, and it was like I went to and I went to Walden Rugby, and it was like, oh my God, what for done? What for done? Because Wigan were probably the I didn't know at the time were, were the best team, um, had the best facilities, had the best coaching staff, you know, and it 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 really told to me that um, I'm maybe now not not the best club, so what can I do as an individual to, to counteract that? And that's when I thought, yeah, I need to go full time. And, um, you know, that the winning stuff and, and playing for Great Britain never really entered my mind, you know, it just, cause it just flowed so quickly. It flowed so quickly that you was on a train and you didn't want to get off it really. Uh, Mike, you touched earlier on, um, on your boys. Um, now it's, you know, we obviously had a bit of a, a look, you know, everybody, knows George and Joe from obviously their professional time and obviously Joe, where's Joe play? is Joe still playing now or because he was at Leicester or yeah so Joe Joe's coach at Doncaster Knights he's the attack the attack coach there so they've finished second they've finished I... second hmm. yeah but um they only lost three games and they beat Ealing twice home and away right. so you could argue yeah, you could argue that Ealing lost four and but finished top because of the bonus points and stuff like that. I think so. He's done. He's done really well. I'm really proud of him because I don't know if he ever touched this on your podcast where you go from a player and and then basically the salary cap because of the pandemic comes down and some players get squeezed out. You know, not not necessarily the top players, not necessarily the bottom players, but the 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 Premiership, the 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 average type. Premiership, the 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 sticks and your, the glue in your squads, they got pushed out a little bit. And now Joe was one of them. So, you know, it hit him. He's only 31 now. And it hit him quite hard that there were no 
no offer of a contract apart from in France or America. Um, and he had a little, he's got uh, a young son now and stuff like that. And he didn't, didn't want to go abroad. And, and he's, 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 I'm proud of him of his transition he's made. In a, he can still play, yeah. He's, he's, like I said, he's 31, he can still play. Um, but he's, he's took his time to be able to um, get the coaching bug, I suppose, and, and leave his playing behind him, which is honestly, uh, we'd be here all night if I told you that the, the situations and experiences we've been through, you know, trying to deal with that, trying yeah. to deal with that. Of, um, look, I'm never probably going to play again now. You know, so I'm proud of him. I'm proud that, uh, you know, they did what they did and stuff. And he's there for another couple of years, um, just re-signed his contract. So, yeah, good luck to him. That's amazing. And um, and Jacob, your your youngest? Yeah. I don't know. You, you never worry about your youngest for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> you worry about your firstborn and, and the eldest and stuff. And But Jacob is... is um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he's he's a director of rugby at Ipswich School. Um, Ipswich, uh, he's twenty three, and and um, he's doing a fantastic job there. Um, he just did really well in the Rosalind Park Sevens. Um, got to the semi-finals of the major league, major competition. Oh, wow. And he's the director of rugby at Bury St Edmunds, which Bury St Edmunds are uh, Division Two South, so it's like level four. Um, and without having a pre-season, they just finished the highest they've ever finished ever, Maybe. which is sixth. In yeah, and he's he's twenty three, and he came to me, um, and it, as a parent, it was my heart my heart sunk when he said these words to me. He said, "Look, Dad, I'm because he was at Wasps Academy, um, and then when I went to Bath as coach, I, I got him into the Bath Academy because it was easier for him to travel and this, that, and the other. Um, and he he spent a lot of time with me, you know." around the coaching field and in the coaching offices and stuff. But he came to me when he was about, I don't know, 19. I think it was really, really early and said, look, he, he said, I don't, I don't want to play it anymore. And I said, oh, my Jacob, you, you're so young. He goes, and he, the, what's the reason? He goes, I'll never be as good as George. Oh my God, my heart sunk. Wow. My heart sunk. And I said to him, look, look, don't, you know, not many people are going to be as good as George, you know, but I said, that's not the reason for you to forsake your career. You know, you'll be as, as good as you can be. And he goes, no, dad, I want to coach. You know, he said, I just want to coach. I, I, I want to put everything into my coaching um, career. And he's since then, like the position he's got himself into now is, is fantastic. Um, we call him in the family, we call him kid coach or, or <laughs> pep. We call him pep. You know, what's, what's he's, doing, he's doing Pep Guardiola. Oh, sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so your coaching career then, you say you kicked off in the lower leagues. When you came to Union and you started uh, working with the national teams, how much of a step up was that for you? How did you feel going to, from like you say, from starting out in um, Duckinsfield um, and then sort of moving on through different coaching um, uh, positions to then get up to the England national team? Yeah, I mean, I've got this, asked this question quite a lot is how did you get, how, was, how come your first job was the Irish job, Irish defence job, when 
as a player, you couldn't tackle yourself, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, but the last three years of my rugby league career, I was player coach. So again, I took a step down from Super League um, into Division One, I, I think it was called at the time, to uh, to be a player and a coach because I wanted to. I knew I wanted to coach, so and that was quite difficult, but. At the time, uh, with Phil Larder being at England, I remember us asking him when I was player coaching, I said, can I come and watch a session at Twickenham or down at Penny Hill and Bagshot there? Came down and watched the session and um, he said to me, have you ever fancied coaching rugby union? And I've gone, well, no, really. I wanted to, although we're doing ducking field, I, I, wanted, I wanted to be a Super League coach, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to go that angle. Um, I said, I've never really thought about it. He goes, well, I know Ireland are looking for a coach. So Warren Gatlin was a coach of Ireland, the foot and mouth here in 2001. Um, and basically I ran, rang Phil up and Phil gave him three names. I think one was Ellery Hanley. One was me. One was um, a guy called Steve Deakin. Um, and we're all rugby league. We're all rugby Warren Gatlin doesn't do well and um, doesn't retain his job with Ireland. Eddie O'Sullivan takes over um, and basically was reading the CVs out. Um, the only person he knew was Ellery Hanley and he arranged to meet Ellery uh, in Leeds and basically saw him where I lived, which was next to Leeds in, in Oldham, about half an hour away. He goes, oh, we might as well see that guy called Mike Ford as well. This is <laughs> This is a true story. So I played with Ellery and we met in this hotel and I'm sat in the foyer. Uh, Ellery had his interview first, which I didn't know about. And he comes out and I'm standing up. Uh, Ellery, Mike, what are you doing here? <laughs> and he had the interview before me, but um, you know, the, it happened on a Friday. Um, Ireland asked me, this is a hundred day contract. So basically, the 2002 Six Nations and then Ireland were going to a tour to New Zealand that summer. So you only had to be in camp when they were. Um, ask, tell me how much you want. So I go back to my wife and I say, listen, I, I think, I think, I think they've just offered me the job, you know, kind of stuff. And um, she goes, well, go back and tell them, don't wait till Monday. Cause I said, I'll wait till Monday. So I, I phoned him up and, and I, and I said the figure, um, and he, he phoned me up Sunday and says, yeah, it's your job. I didn't, I was absolutely petrified. I, I was absolutely petrified because, um, I mean, I knew, I knew Duckingfield level eight or the player coaching <laughs> I was doing. I, and then, like I said to you before, lads, I didn't know anything about rugby union, you know, at that, that level. Um, and I, I got on the plane to go to the first session. Keith Wood was on it. Uh, the Irish captain at the time, he didn't know who I was. Um, it was a bit bizarre because we, we both got in the same taxi at the airport and met there. And I was very lucky, lads, because Ireland, I was the first defence coach Ireland ever had. So oh, really? when, when I asked, wow. yeah, when I asked, yeah, when I asked questions of what did they do defensively, apart from hitting a few shields, uh, <laughs> they didn't do anything. So, um, yeah, and, 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 you know, fake it before you make it, I think, you know. Um, do, you, do you think Phil Larder knew that, though? Do you think Phil Larder, when he was approached, 
thought, you know, actually, um, this this um, setup needs somebody from league that actually knows about defence. Yeah, I think obviously he had a massive influence because he was doing a, such a good job with um, with England. So, um, and I don't know if you remember earlier what I said about Phil. He was ten years coaching the rugby league coaching manual for coaches. He, he spent ten years. Um, researching, going to Australia, going to American football, writing this coaching manual, which is brilliant, by the way, from in the in the early, um, well, throughout the 90s. Um, so he, obviously, Ron Gatland at the time valued his, his... I think there was only one more, maybe two more defence coaches in World Rugby at the time. There was um, maybe Dave Ellis at France, which is, is Rugby League, and a guy called John Muggleton for Australia. Now, John Muggleton... I played against in that final I was talking about earlier at Wembley, 1985. He played. He played on the opposite side. It's funny how, how your careers paths cross all the time. So I think there was only them two. Maybe, maybe I don't know if Dave Ellis came after me, but certainly I was third or fourth in in world rugby at the time. Um, and what I did is I, I I just got what we used to do in league. I just I just got that system. Knew that we could be on the back foot, which made it in my head, really easy. We have to be 10 yards back and stuff. Um, and I just developed it along the way, you know, and, and to be fair to Eddie O'Sullivan, who backed me, Declan Kidney was in that coaching group. To be fair to them guys, um, they give me the, the, the time to to implement stuff. And like I said to you, I didn't know if it would work or not. And I, and I adjusted, adapted along the way. And I was there for four years. I was there for four years, which... In the end, which was great for, for learning with, with, I know it's Six Nations, and I, but it was like, with no pressure, really. Hmm. With no pressure, yeah. And then where did, you, where did you go after your four years with Ireland? I went to, um, 2005, I went on the Lions tour to New Zealand. Um, again, Clive Woodward took two coaching teams, you remember. Um, so Phil Larder was the main coach who coached the test team against the All Blacks I was a midweek coach if you like um, and I went to Saracens I was also coaching Saracens defence so they they sacked uh, Rod Kafer Christmas 2004 um, and I was just a defence coach part time and they asked me to take over so um in 2005, I became the head coach at Saracens Rugby. Um, and still then, um, he could even say still now, James. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Um, <laughs> and, and, and it was a great learning curve for me because um, that year, so the rest of that season, uh, we did really well. I think we won 14 out of 17 games and, we, we, we qualified for Europe, which prompted Saracens to give me a three-year contract as head coach. Um, but I wasn't ready. I wasn't didn't know it at the time. But once you become a selector and the decision's yours whether a player plays or not, is a completely different ball game than being an assistant coach or a development coach or, a, you know, I'm just in charge of defence or whatever it is. Once you're the boss kind of stuff, it's a whole new world. Um, and I wasn't ready for that. Um, in my management skills and and uh, I, I thought I was a good coach in terms of uh, on the field and you know in, in terms of systems and stuff but the managing and you remember back in the day Saracens were full of superstars um, so 
Um, I couldn't, I couldn't get out of there quick enough, uh, to be honest. Um, and after one year, 18 month, England were looking for a defence coach. So I was lucky enough to, to grab that job for six years um, and go back and think, right, this is what I must learn. This, these are the gaps I must fill if I ever want to be an head coach again, you know. Um, so um, that's what I did. Um, and then the second head coach's job, obviously, was 2013 with Bath Rugby. I thought then, I was 48 at the time, I thought I was ready then. I thought I was ready to be the head coach again. So probably eight years after my first head coach, I thought I was ready. Um, were you? Looking back, um, now, I think. Yeah, I think I was. I think I was, to be fair. Um, there's still gaps in my knowledge in terms of, you know, I wasn't an expert in, every, in, in you know, I thought defence, I thought attack, um, I thought management selection, uh, you know, running the running the, the other staff and management. Um, I thought I was ready for all that. It's still gaps in your line out and scrum knowledge, but you could you could question the you could ask the right questions. Do you know what I mean? Without really knowing where the answers were going to come from or, or lead to. Um, but yeah, I, I thought I was. Yeah, and you know, like you know, you, you, you the proofs in the pudding into in terms of what you achieved and, and, and uh, win, win rate, if you like, as a, as a head coach. Um, director of rugby f- for the season, didn't you, at Bath? Is that right? Yeah, for three years. Yeah, yeah. for three years. So, um, proofs yeah, so, you know, yeah, I think, you know, we, I think, you know, we, the, the thing, the thing that I did was I, I involved all the stakeholders into, you know, how did Bath, how did everybody want to be Bath to be seen to be playing? You know, because there's a few number of ways you want to play, but the, the core DNA behind it all, um, how did how did the stakeholders, the, 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 the board, uh, the fans, and more importantly, the players, how did they want to play? And I, and I involved all them and, you know, what involved in that is recruitment. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to go, you know, do you want to go the, the, the Saracens way, if you like, at the time and, Try and bring in the best players in the world. Um, do you want to try and play? Uh, bring senior players in who, who've been there, done it from other clubs who have been successful, or did you want to, you know, get the best young English talent around and build from the like Man United did in in '93 with the famous five? You know, and we all went for the went for the latter, and within that, we all said this is going to be. It's going to take time. It's going to be a bit of a roller coaster with youngsters, you know, kind of stuff. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I, and and in some ways, we we went straight like that in the first two years. We went too quick, too high, too quick. So in third year, when we when we did that a little bit, uh, you know, uh, I suspect the board expected me to win it and stuff, and us to win it. Um, so. Um, yeah, so you then, you know, when we said it'll take time, when we said it'd be a roller coaster, um, we were on the we we're on the dip, and they decided to to part company with me. How did, if if you don't mind talking about how, because you know we hear a lot about how cutthroat it is 
players wise in the in the professional professional sort of setup what is it like being like a, a premiership coach and do you feel I mean I know pretty much next to nothing about football but they do seem to chop and change their managers quite a lot and it is very results driven did you feel secure were you like um oh, I'm doing okay was there constant communication or was it always crap I need to you know I'm, I'm worrying about this sort of thing yeah um a bit of both I think I was it wasn't until I mean even I got sacked in May and May 2016 and and in February that year uh, you have the old vote of confidence from from Bruce Craig the the owner of Bath who gets me in and says look I don't care about the results. Um, I'm going back. I'm backing you. The, the squad's great. You know what do you need? Um, so yeah, it's this. It, it it was disappointing. It's cutthroat. Um, you you look about. We signed a guy called Sam Burgess, which didn't help matters. Um, who left beginning of the season really? You know, after committing for three years. You know, it was just one of them term term. Uh, a year where England had just had a poor World Cup 2015. We had nine players in that squad. They came back to us. They missed the pre-season. You know, so, you know, we had to pick all them up and everything. So it, it was just like, yeah, and we we had some, even that that season. If you, if you, if you look now, Jay, and I know you're involved, but if you, if you look at that season I, get, I got sacked to, the one they're having now, yeah, right. <laughs> the one you're having now is ten times worse than yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. You know, kind of. but the expectation of the first two years, you know, counted against me. Do you know what I mean? Because everyone expected. Oh. We lost in the final. We lost in the final, so it was a case of right. We're going to win it next year. We're going to go one one step further. You know, um, so yeah, it was like. Sorry, I've just got to do something there. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> just walking about the house. Yeah, lovely house, by the way, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Yes. That must have been. Sorry, Mike. Yeah, that, that must have been proper. I find that quite difficult that because you had two really good seasons, that then expectation is right. Well, well, we're in the final and we lost the final. Um, so next year we're going to win it, right? Right, guys. Mm. Like, and I find that quite a, a difficult, a difficult mindset to have, and not necessarily a, a fair one. Uh, you know, I'm sure there was people who make the decisions that are a lot, you know, more knowledgeable than me. But you know, I look at it from a from a people management point of view. I always like to think that rugby is a is a bit different. I do then have that really difficult understanding of they've, you know look at where they are now and they are not doing well at all. They're very lucky. There is no relegation and stuff like that. As a a lot of people are around. I just feel perhaps that it's, you know, it's like you say, you know, it goes against you because you were winning. Uh, But then if, you know, they've had like probably, you know, one of the worst seasons ever, you know, they get 67 points bottom them by Gloucester and nobody really batters an eyelid because they go, well, it's Bath. They're not doing very well at the moment. I find mm. yeah, I find that mindset quite a difficult one to be in. Very. I'm mindful, yeah. mindful, Mike. Sorry to to just cut in. I'm mindful that um, time's running, um, and I want to try and touch on these in the second half. These sort of 
um, the way you respond to things like that. So if you don't mind, we'll have a quick brief half time, very brief, um, and we'll follow on with these discussions on on afterwards. So um, just to let everybody know, half time, we're trying to promote local grassroots rugby. We're out of season at the moment, so there isn't going to be much announcements. Although, Jay, you've got a sevens tournament to announce. Yeah, so uh, literally sevens, well done to uh, the Windsox who won it on Saturday for the men's tournament. Um, Sunday, uh, massive well done to the Elling Ringwood ladies who won it and also for the under the Colts, the under 18s. Massive well done to Swanage and Wareham. Um, Monday for the 16s, well done to Wimborne for winning that. Um, there's also then uh, coming up on the 8th and the 9th is um, uh, North Dorset 7s. Um, there are a few uh, spaces that are available still for that. Um, so please, I think the best way is to go and have a look on their Instagram, which is just North Dorset 7s. Um, there's a few left in there for their social men's teams, ladies team. And there's even a vets team, James, if you're interested. <laughs> wow. Okay. Um, yeah. Don't know about that. We'll see. We'll see. Um, okay, everybody, if there is anything you'd like announcing on our podcast to promote your local club, please get in touch. All of the social media channels uh, at Be More Rugby or Be More Rugby, however they work. And uh, either myself, James or Jay uh, on the email, james at bemorerugby.com or jay at. Um, yeah, get in touch. So, Mike, thank you. The second half, we want to touch on um, the philosophy of our game. And I know we were going down the route of defeats and bits and pieces, but we like to start our second half off with the question, what does rugby mean to you? It's been my life um, from, from a very early age. Um, give me a, an unbelievable living um, and, a, and, a, and a, a career that is still going in seeing the world family have been around the world and, and now I've got three boys who are all involved in it. So it's given me everything really taught me a lot as well. Um, you know, because even when you, when you, when you first play when you're 17 to you finish when you're 35, that what you learn in terms of experience and, and, and um, friendships um, and experiences it is, is phenomenal. And then you become a coach, you start all again right at the beginning and you go through the same journey again. And the development you, you become as a person is as rugby has given me that where I am now to, I, you know, I wish James and James, I wish I was here 20 years ago. What, what I know. And now rugby has been, I'll be, I'll be able to figure, um, for, for rugby, I'll be, I'll be ever uh, thankful for that sport because it's given us everything, really. Um, and I and I've been able to, I've been able to transfer that to to the three boys who I was talking earlier about. Maybe me, I didn't have that rugby mentor um, stroke, um, you know, character off the field as well. How to conduct yourself and stuff. Uh, you know, so you, you give that to your boys, and hopefully they they'll have families themselves, and and they'll be able to go the, another step further for when for when they are, you know, when bringing up their children. So uh, if you look at it like that, uh, you're talking about generations. It, it's just it's just been everything for us, really, everything. And uh, you spoke about your sons. Um, 
obviously rugby has given you a, a fantastic career. You, you were privileged enough to be professional in your sport at quite a young age still. Um, okay, even part-time. But your beginning, your dad was a plumber. You didn't have the, the leg up perhaps that, that your lads have managed to gain from you. How much harder do you think it is or was for yourself in your day than it was be would be for your lads or maybe lads today that have got better opportunity or easier routes into to rugby? Yeah, although, although I didn't have a leg up at my age, I went to, if you remember, I went to some, some fantastic yeah, schools yeah. with some brilliant coaches who were rugby league mad, rugby mad. So that, that shapes you. Your, your younger years and your experiences and stuff like that. So I I said earlier in the podcast that some lads would never have that opportunity. Mm. Um, so I actually feel quite lucky, to be honest. And then, you know, um, undoubtedly, Joe, George and um, Jacob have had um, mentoring that other lads wouldn't probably get their age. So um, it, I think it's... You, you've got to make the most of that opportunity, haven't you? I mean, when George was when George was fifteen, uh, I had him. I probably went too far as a parent, but he had a he had a kicking coach, he had a sprint coach who um, redeveloped the way he ran, um, all his all his technique stuff, uh, you know, because he was pretty much. Um, not resourceful enough when he ran and stuff. He had a nutritionist, uh, Stuart Lancaster, the, the ex-England coach, you know, at Leinster, he was the academy coach at England, give him a computer so he could analyse games. Do you know what I mean? I mean, and now you look at it, which other person in the world, which other kids in the world at 15, 16 had that sort of support? Mm. You know, and I, and I was coaching, I was coaching England at the time. So, you know, it's like, no wonder... It would have been a failure if George has not got eight to caps, for example, wouldn't it, really, yeah. if you think of it like that? So it's just... But at the same time, it, he he had an opportunity. He took it. He took it as well. Because it's not just... You've got to put the effort in and the hard work in it, you know. Um, so, you know, like, like I said to you, when they have their own children, they'll have more opportunities. They'll learn from what I've not... Where I've missed out with them and probably could have done better with them. They'll learn from that. And then so, you know, so, so forth and stuff. And um, yeah, you know, opportunity into it. I mean, if even in an environment, um, have you read the work? Have you read the book Bounce? I haven't, no. No, I haven't. No, Matthew. Yeah, no, Sounds fantastic. Matthew, you've got to, no, you've got to read it where uh, there's a challenge in the book where this guy is not, even had children and he's predicted that when he has children they become grandmasters at chess because of the way he brings them up in the environment that he brings them up in and they were they were they were grand environment so they you know the kids had chess pieces when they were playing with chess pieces not chess just playing with the pieces when they were two and three you know what i mean and then began to learn the moves at three and four and five and it was just like he, he, he predicted what you do with kids at that age and the, the opportunity to give them um has a long, long way to, to, to work where they where they get to, but at the same time, the kids gotta take hold of it. Mm. They've gotta you know they've got to want it as well. Did you 
was George. So talking about George, how old was he when you first started playing? I snuck, I snuck him on. I snuck him on, and my wife's never forgive me for this, but he was <laughs> playing for. I Joe was three years older, so Joe was playing for the under sevens, and I snuck him on in the wing in the second half <laughs> when he was four. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's unreal. Yeah. yeah. So really, like, we did that for a couple of years. Really, I think he, they started playing at under seven, so he, he probably played at under six, you know, sixes, six, seven, you know, so he was really young, really young. So had you read uh, this bounce before you had kids? No, no. You've read no, it since? No, I don't. So it wasn't yeah, uh, I'm going to get them on the pitch as soon as I possibly can to make them develop no, into rugby players? Again, this is, this is not... You know, everyone will know this story that, you know, I play rugby, so the kids are interested in what daddy does and stuff, yep. you know, so I take them down, to take Joe, the eldest, down to the to the local rugby club and the young, the second one wants to go with him. So, you know, <laughs> they have that interest there and then, you know, kind of stuff, because that's, that's the environment they're in, the culture they're in, you know, so, yeah. Did, did George start with... League or union? Oh no, George didn't play union till he was, uh, till he was like he went to a rugby union school, but he he didn't play union till he was 15, 16. Yeah. No, 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 of course he played 15, 14, 15. So he played league and league. So he back in the day, he you could sign for a rugby league club, but it was only a twelve month contract. So he, he signed for Warrington, then went to Wigan. Then he went to Bradford Bulls three consecutive years, and he played for school rugby union. But it, to be honest, um, it was a waste of time for him because the standard, the standard was so poor that you know it was just just a waste of time to him. So I spoke to the school's teacher and said, um, "Can you tell me when the trials are for England under 16s And he goes, "Well, he's only fifteen." I said, "Well." I know he is, but I think I think he could play for them. Anyway, to cut long story short, uh, there's five games each county plays. He was at a Yorkshire school. He missed the first four games. I mean, he rings me up because I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot to tell you. Um, so I said, well, can you get him in for the last game? And they were playing Lancashire. He goes, well, let's see if we can train on Tuesday. So... They go and have a look at him, no promises. So they look at George Train on Tuesday, they think, oh, we better put him in the team. Yeah. So George then played against Lancashire in the last game and they bring him off at half time because it was 30 0 to Yorkshire. Do you know, and if that's how much he stood out, even just playing one training session on half a game, and then, you know, him and Owen then played for England in the 16s that year. Um, he was the first, he was, I think, I think he was the third lad to play a year young, Cipriani being one of them, and I think Richard Hill being the other one, Richard Hill, the flanker. Um, yeah, and then that year, he went to play for the under-18s in Argentina. So, he, he but at junior level, uh, James, it, was, it wasn't, it was, he didn't have to be a tactical 10 or anything like that, you know. He didn't have to, to manage games like you do at professional level. So at that stage, he's still, he's still figuring out whether he wants to play rugby league or rugby union, you know, kind of stuff. So um, we talked about it. Um, 
and um, he could have gone in to play rugby league like me at 17 and got into a first team really early. We knew that wouldn't happen in rugby union. Yeah. Um, but if we wanted to be a really good rugby union player in the, in the future, we, we felt he has to play, you know, at junior level. He has to play, go through the age groups. He has to play 18 football, you know, that sort of stuff to actually learn the game. Um, you know, how, how do you play in the way in the in the rain and wind, and how do you play when you haven't got a pack? How do you play? You know, that sort of when you're losing stuff and the kicking game, and you, you know. So he had to learn all them things, and we felt so he, he crossed. He signed for Leicester Tigers when he were just turned sixteen, I think. Yeah. So looking at George, he's considered one of the leaders in the England side currently. He certainly stands a. Um, stands up and puts his head up to to try and um, keep you know keep the game you know whatever game he's in he stands out. Does he, as far as leadership goes, is that something that you think you've taught or do teach when you've been coaching, or is that something you see in people and try and develop? Yeah, no, I, I you do see it in people and try and develop, but you you want everyone to develop no matter what. Um, level they're at in terms of uh, you know obviously you're going to have a captain you're going to have lieutenants and vice captain you're going to have leaders of defence leaders of attack but there's also the lads underneath the, you know that you, you still try and develop them as a leader you know you still you know you get them to present in front of the team and you get them to talk to people you get them to look at a, their particular area with more forensic detail kind of from leading them areas and stuff but with George we, we I mean it's not just George. We had a fantastic leadership group um, at Bath Rugby, for example, um, and it ended up to be it ended up to be, and I won't have this number again, but it ended up to have nine in the meeting, you know. Um, and it got to a stage where um, we started off the meeting, and, and I'll have an agenda, and I'll go through it and ask them what they thought were, and then it, it slowly they came up with the agenda. They they were having the meetings on their own. They they were coming to me with ideas and solutions and things like that. And it took a while. It took a while. That's exactly what you want as a leader. And, and George was very much part of that. Um, he now, where he's excelling now for me, um, is, is the, the ability to adapt on a field, the ability to grab hold of a game and keep control of it. The, you see these games... At the moment, end of season games, London Irish 42, was 42, you know, them sort of games were like, who's got control of that game? Well, nobody, but, by, by, you know, it's a fantastic spectacle. Um, but it, the way you can figure it out on a field, you know, this is happening, this is good, keep it going, this is not good, change it, you know, that type of thing um, is grown into to, to really excel. And we've done a lot of work as a, you know, uh, together on, on them sort of mindset decisions, the way he thinks about a game, you know, kind of stuff. But, I mean, look, I haven't played. I have, I have not played for 20, 20 odd years. You know, he, he's playing every week. So he, he's got a great handle more than any other coach because, he, 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 you know, and a coach says, why don't you do this? You know, when we're sat in the stand, aren't we? You know, with a cup of coffee and you know, asking him why he didn't do that, he basically, you know, you've got to get you, you, the best players and the best coaches because they're feeling it, they're seeing it, they know 
how much heat they're getting off the opposition, you know, kind of stuff. So um, the mental side of it is uh, we've worked, worked really hard. And I think it's still unscratched in the game in general. Jay, James, I think it's still unscratched, uh, still untouched, really, the mental side of the game in terms of where it can go. Um, so I think that sets him apart, that. Do you think that's the next level in rugby then developing the, the mental side of things? The the understanding of yeah. the game, the vision of the game, the decision making. Yeah, I, th- I think there's, there's a lot of ways to look at the mental side of it, you know, kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of coaches say we, we concentrate, just focus on that next play and, you know, that next sequence or line out scrum, focus on that first. And, you know, there's a stoppage in play and how do you, how do you get ready for that next restart of the game? And there's all things like that that's been around and people, Jay, you're breathing and, and all that stuff. Um, it's actually in the heat of the moment is... Yeah. So Clive Wood, Clive Woodward in, in his book of winning said it's teacup, which is thinking correctly under pressure. You know, when they're under pressure and the heart rate's going at 120, 150, 160... You know, can you think correctly? Um, well, I actually think, uh, you know, we, along with another friend of mine who's, who's a doctor and, and, and a, a mental skills coach, we came up with A-Cup, which is acting correctly under pressure. So actually, you're actually in the moment and you're acting, you're executing whatever you need to do correctly in, the, in that moment under pressure. So you're either making a tackle, you're either lifting a line out, you're either catching... Um, at the line out, you're either running the football, you're either clearing out. So you're acting correctly under pressure, making the right decisions, you tackle height, slow, boom, boom, boom. But we're, I think, in my experience, where it's not as good is thinking clearly under pressure. So thinking when, um, when the ball's out of play and when the ball's in play, what is happening on the field, the way the game's unfolding, what do we need to do to adapt? How can you influence the game when there's 30 people on plus a referee? How can you influence a game in that moment with that little bit of a time to adapt and think? And then, you know, you know, we 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 coaches, we you know, we're, we're smug, we're smug fellas we, who go and watch the game once on a Saturday night after the game, and then we watch it twice on a Sunday, and we still don't know what's what to say, and then. You know, you watch it a fourth time and then you go, oh, why didn't they do this? I'm going to say that to them tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? And we've had three, we've watched the game three times. The first two, we didn't know what were happening and we didn't know the answers. And we go in the next day and say, and say why didn't you do this? You know, so, you know, it's very, very difficult. And But I think you can, if you, if you look at that, what I've just said, it's, that's why people don't touch it. You know, that's why I think it's very difficult to coach that sort of, uh, understanding of the mental skills, thinking clearly, thinking clearly, and be able to adapt. Mike, how do you? And I completely know it's a really, really difficult thing. And I try and you know, with the the lads that I coach at different various levels, is like you say on that review, is you've got three days to analyze that and to work out what you think the correct decision was in that situation. How do you coach it into? the athletes and the players that you're working with to make that exact same decision that you took three days to make in three seconds or less than three seconds, 0.3 seconds. 
Yeah, so it's a great question. It's something um, where it, I didn't didn't think this is how you're going to do it from day one. I didn't I didn't get there in day one, and it probably took a pre-season, Jay. It took a full season. It took another pre-season, right? And it was halfway through the next season. I think, oh my god, we are now getting it. So you, you look at that. There's two pre-seasons and a season and a half with the very best players in the world, Jonathan Joseph, Kyle Eastman, Rocco Dagoon, um, Anthony Watson, Matt Banahan, you know, Peter Stringer, Dave Atwood, Rob Webber, you know, Francois Law, you know, they, like, were some of the best players in the world at the time. Yeah. And like, and that's how long it took with them guys. And to answer your question, we developed a, a session where uh, we got it as game-like as we good during the week. Do you know what I mean? We got it as game-like as we good. Um, and, I, and I took it a little bit from football where football if you talk to football managers they do do a lot of small sided games for this particular skill and for that particular skill which is great but ultimately they need to play 11 on 11 during the week do you know what I mean because that's the game do you know what I mean you put your jigsaw pieces during the week on your little small sided games but you need to put it together you can't wait for the weekend and, and the match so we 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 put it together on a Thursday before a Saturday where we tried to make it as game-like as possible. And in that, right, to, to let the game unfold like it would do in a game. So you, you have a referee, you get a referee in, you play as close as contact as you can without full-on, right? And you play whatever happens. So, you know, we, we were always trying to be big on the first 20 minutes of the game and starting superbly and faster and all, all these things, more energy. But if... If the first kick off, you drop it. It's their scrum and you're half. You know, we we would actually play that. We I wouldn't say right kick off again because because you don't get another chance yeah, yeah, in a yeah. game. In a, um, and as it developed, you then you then start putting challenges in there. You know, you start asking the opposition who we've told the first team that it, it's this level of contact to be to get the, get their head over the ball and start nicking it. You, you tell the referee to really um, be really strict on the offside. Do you know what I mean? Or anybody on the ground at the ruck time, you're penalising them. You know, kind of stuff. So you, you you give them challenges like that. And, you know, sometimes I've put, you know, the opposition, I'll have 17 men on the field, just sneak another two on, see what they thought, you know, kind of stuff. And they, they, they get frustrated. And, and you know, and it was like, They've got to figure it out themselves what what was going on, you know. So, um, and we won't have any coach on the field. They, they, there's nowhere that where they could turn to. They only could turn to each other. Do you know what I mean? And it was like, yeah, we have we have said on a Tuesday our game plan this week is off the top, right? We have said that, and we want to play wide. But come Thursday, it's raining. It's the gale force wind, right? And you. you you see them then when you first start. You see them trying to come off the top and go wide, you know. And you go to them, well, what are you doing? Well, that's our game plan. No, 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 no. <laughs> you play what you know, and they, they start figuring it out. Oh, right, okay, can you? These are the these are the principles that we play by, but we can adapt and change at any time. So, and and you make it really easy in, in, in at first in some of the decisions that that you can change to. You know what I mean? So. You know, if they're jackling the football, jackling every time of the football, you're probably better off kicking the ball early doors, you know, to because when the fresh and energy, they, 
if you're jackling the football. If you if 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 you're um, want to come off the top, but they put an extra defender in the midfield, right? You'd be stupid to come off the top, wouldn't you? Kind of stuff, you know. So you you got I know want to come off the top, but when we played Saracens once, they put two extra forwards in the backfield because they were so scared of our backline. Right. So then the first liner, we came off the top and got absolutely battered. So you look at it from a coach's point of view. The second one, we drove it. So we've now got an advantage in line out. So that, do you know what I mean? So they, they, they think like that. And, um, you know, little things like you would think, you know, whether to go for goal, whether to have a penalty, you know, scrum, whether to go for touch, all them things, you know, is, you, you know, put a, put a guy and put the scrum half in the sim bin, put the number two in the sim bin, you know, put your, your leader in the sim bin, you know, all them things that could happen on a match day. How do we adapt here? What do we do? Like that. And you, you that. don't, go on, sorry, you don't have no, the answers. Sorry, they can't turn no, no, they can't turn to you on the field and say, what will you do, coach? Because you're not there. And I find myself, you know, I've put a real, I've set myself short-term and long-term goals this season. And one of my short-term, but also a long-term goal was the same thing is, is leadership development. And the stuff that you've just described there, I know that sometimes I'm very guilty, particularly when I'm coaching in the forwards, in the line-out stuff. If they make a mistake, I'm like, right, start again. And, and I, I know I'm guilty of that. And, listening to you talk about that then is it's not game realistic because the referee doesn't go, ah, oh, was that one not straight? Oh, that's right. Second serve. Then you can have another go. Cause it's not, it's not game realistic. Um, yeah. One of my targets that I set myself and I wanted to go back to some of the stuff you're talking about with the leadership is um, sort of a two pronged question, but I set myself a target to make myself redundant on a match day um, by Christmas. So, by the time the captain would go and he would run the warm up, he would do everything, he would organize everything. And all I would do is just stand on and maybe do some subs and stuff like that. But everything else was all down to the players. And then not to say a word tactically, unless it was well done, well in, good next job, anything like that, nothing tactically. And I, I found it hard, but as soon as I'd done that, the performance that was better and the leadership that came after Christmas was amazing. But my question yeah. to you is what I really struggled with is picking the right people to be in that situation. So what to you makes a good leader? Who, who was your, who did you choose as captain of Bath when you were there and, and why? Well, the, the first thing you look at is, is, is the character, don't you? The guy who's going to turn up to train every day, turn up to train. Are they going to go balls out? Sorry, but are they going to are they going to give the best every single day at training? Do you know what I mean? And they care about the team. So, so you, them are the the requisites of of, of, a, of a leader. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be the best player, right? But them them two. So then, whatever he does, the whatever action he makes, team team can follow. And then and then, how does he speak? How does he speak to the team? Do you know what I mean? How does he? Is he a guy who just shouts and balls? Or is he a guy who can encourage and come up with solutions on the day? And yeah, he needs a little bit of, um, you know, you're not doing this right and we need to up our efforts kind of stuff and we need to we need to get stuck in more. God, you need that as well. But you, you need a leader um, who can do all them things. And then 
if he's pretty good as well, then then you know on a match day that is sorry if he's pretty good as well on a match day then then it's a case of when you said it was fine you find it very hard Jay it is you want to get on you want to tell them you want to really <laughs> tell them do this do that and then there's a there's a there's a phase in in, in your coaching journey that two pre-seasons and the season and a half where you do tell them but then you like you said phase yourself out and it's what if you've coached them well you've got them thinking a, a certain way you've got them thinking in a critical way right so that you don't they don't need you um, and the decisions and the reason we do it is because we want them to make the decisions there and then on the field we want them to instantaneously do you know what I mean? And the loads of debates I can think of I've had with the leadership group were, why did you make that decision? And and they go, because we were thinking this. So I go, got it, right? Great thinking. But have you thought about this? And then that's where the debate comes. Do you know what I mean? That's so. Then you're not, you're never chastising them. You're never criticism of any decision because what the heck did you go for goal for there? We had to go for the corner. You know what I mean? They're never going to make. They're never going to make a decision if you like that. Yeah. You, because the, like if they're getting shouted at all the time, nobody wants to be shouted at or told all the time. So then you you know you manipulate it so that you ask questions, you know, and you debate it, you know. Um, and it, it's like, are you a, how much tell are you saying at this part of the journey compared to the end? Do you know what I mean? And it's very. It's very difficult, very difficult. You know, I had Toby Booth as my assistant. Get run on with the teeth, Toby. Toby, shut up. Let's see what they do. Yeah. Let's see what they do. Shoot, Hooper, get the tee on. There you go. Do you not think that's much better? Do you not feel much calmer now, Toby, that they're making the correct decisions on the field? Do you know what I mean? And, it, and it's little things like, like that. Half-time, half-time. Bath do it differently now. So half time they let the players go in and the coaches stay out. Mm. Where when I was coaching Bath, we went in, we went in and we, we left the players out. And the first thing we did is what what do you guys think? You've spoken to each other. What did you say? And I want to go in there and say our oh, line speed's not good defensively. And they'll come out and say, Francois Loggers, we need to up our line speed. Brilliant. Yeah. I've not said a word. Yeah. I've not said a word. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, redundant. So it's, it's it's like that you develop it, and, and it's like a like I said, it's a journey. You mentioned about um, you use the word critical thinking um, or thinking uh, when they're in situations, yeah. they're thinking clearly uh, under pressure and correctly under pressure. You also said early in the podcast that you learn more from failure when you've got guys on the pitch in in two scenarios one they've been doing everything that they've been doing in training and they come away with a loss or they start off as they thought and immediately they get two maybe three scores against them at that point where they're they're losing or or when they come off and they've lost how do you prepare them to develop thereafter how do you prepare their minds to learn from that failure or is that just something that comes with experience yeah, I think it's it's difficult to actually 
go into the change rooms after a loss and, and, and say that say the right thing, you know, kind of stuff. It, it's always difficult. Um and 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 very rarely I can I count twice I've actually blown up in a change room in my career in 20 years. I've, I've twice. Um because of lack of effort. But the losses, you know, it's always a case of let's come back on Monday and let's see where we are and, and start the journey again. Do you know what I mean? If 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 the loss is is because of lack of effort, you you you're bath on Saturday against Gloucester. I mean, that's the worst thing you can be as a coach where they give up. But if the fight's always there, and it's always I and mean, it's an execution or it's a decision making thing, or in fact, James, the opposition were just better than you on the day. Mm. Do you know what I mean? You've got to. I always I always took the approach that um, we're in this together. Do you know what I mean? And because we've lost, uh, it's probably because of my bad coaching during the week. That's how I used to look at it. And I used to always say to the coaches, come back in. How can you? How can we be better? What do we need to do? A lot of environments I've been in is players are this and the players are that and he's this and we need to sell him and this, that and the other. We, they don't look at... We, and we, if you watch my career, I, I used to go down to the sideline when we were losing. I wanted to be front and centre when we were losing. I wanted to show the team that I'm part of it. Do you know what I mean? If we lost, I was first on the pitch. I was the other, other way when we were winning. I was the other way. But I, And I know coaches that do it the opposite. They don't go on the field if they've lost because I've, I've got nothing to do with that performance. Kind of, You know, kind of stuff. So it, losses are it's just start of another journey, a chance to get better. Do you know what I mean? Learn, let's learn from this. Everybody. But I always started with myself. Always starting myself. Is that something you've learned through your career personally or is that something that got taught to you? I mean, we spoke about your success at Bath and then you ended up losing your position at Bath. You know, that big loss sounds to me like perhaps that was one of the first big losses of your coaching career. Were you prepared yeah. for that? Did did you learn from that one specifically, or? Yeah, it, it was. Um, I mean, when when I got coached at rugby league, it was a case of dead set. You come in on the day, and if you've lost, it was you know the table thrown over, and cups went all over the changing rooms, and I'm going to sell you, and why didn't you do this? And I thought to myself, my God, why didn't you not tell me this on before the game? What to do? Why is he telling me after the game? And that's where, you know, that's that's. I'm, I thought I'll never be like that as a coach. I'll never be like that as a coach. You know, kind of stuff. Um, but but nothing. Well, nothing could prepare you for the for the 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 way. Um, what happened at Bath? Nothing can prepare you as a professional. Nothing can prepare you as a as an individual. You know. No one definitely not the compares you as a family, you know, because George was still playing at Bath at the time. Um, and it was tough to take, and you know, um, you know, the messages that come in and the, the emails that you get, and can't believe it, and this, that, and the other. And then there's a reason they sacked me, there's a reason they sacked me, you know. Um, did I fully understand it, or did I fully get the truth why I, I got sacked? I'm, I'm not sure, but ultimately, I wasn't there. And there was a time where I had to come out to the 
feeling sorry for myself, um, doldrums, and and start looking at myself again. Start looking at myself again. I did it about two or three times during my playing career where I felt sorry for myself. And there's only per- there's only one person can change it, and that's me. Um, and as soon as you get out of that cycle of uh, I'm badly done to, you can then start moving ahead of your career. Right, I've learned that bit there. Let's take it into your next stage of your career. And that's what I hopefully tried to do. Um, yeah. But it, nothing can prepare you for, for what happened, especially, the you know, the way it happened. Mm. It, am I right in saying that it was Todd Blackadder that came in after you, Mike? Is that right? Or yes. Was, uh... Yeah, yeah. Now, it was obviously, you know, you touched on it slightly earlier, but it was very um, your exit and the other stuff that came, maybe not immediately, but afterwards there was a lot of stuff that went around the media um, about yourself, your relationship with um, Sam Burgess, who you spoke about. How did you deal with that that sort of stuff that was coming your way? What Because for me, you know, you talk about trying to park it and move on and better yourself and stuff like that. How did you deal then when it came back up again that afterwards? Yeah, it was... Um... <laughs> it's, it's just difficult. It's just difficult, you know, because obviously the main thing... Um... I wanted to, I wanted to feel it was. It, it's your family, the way your family feel for it, you know, your wife and obviously your three boys. They're absolutely in tears and, and gutted for you. Then that makes you feel even. Oh my God, I've let everyone down, yeah. you know. Um, and you want to try and move out to that. Like, like I said to you a couple of times in my playing career, not as bad as that, but you get yourself in a rut. And, and if it, you know, it's, it's up to you how long you stay in that rut. And I wanted to try and get out of it as quickly as possible. But then, as you can mention, the, the press brought it, brought it back up again. And even, I think, maybe 2016 and I think it's 2019, maybe 2020, the Sam Burgess, four years later, gets brought up again. Yeah. You know, um, and you, you just, <laughs> it, it, it just brings back bad memories. But, yeah. um, you know, and I learned, I learned a lot of, like when you when you when you sit back and you're honest with yourself, yeah, there's lots of things I could have done better that year. Lots of things. Do you know what I mean? Lots of things. Uh, so you take it, like I said, you, you, you there's nothing you can do. You take it on the chin and move on and, and, and take it to the next job and hopefully do a better job there. So um, it it still it still still hurts. It still hurts. Where, where did you go after Bath, Mike? I went to Toulon. And how yeah, so how, how was that culture-wise different from the Prem, obviously being in the top 14 or Pro 14, Pro 12 or whatever? Yeah, you, it was, it, you know, like, yeah, you, you just feel so lucky. You, you, you know, you, we played, we played Toulon in that, in the Champions Cup in that year. I got sacked and um, uh, we lost 9-6 at, Stab Mayall and in, in Toulon there and the first time anybody had kept some trialers, you know, kind of stuff. And we we should have won and this, that and the other. And I think Murad Bujalad, the, the president, was impressed the way Bath were playing. And you know, so he gave me an opportunity there. I became uh, Dominguez, Diego Dominguez with the head coach. Um, but he, he had gone. Um, so I went in there and became the head coach, and it was fantastic again. Uh, Matt Gitto, uh, Drew Mitchell, Hannah, 
a banner, uh, Dwayne V. Mullen. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was God Godsey. Uh, I'm trying to think of them all. It's just like, what a team. What a team. Um, but there were, there were a reason they weren't, I'm not, I mean, I've not been successful since Johnny Wilkinson left, you know. So yeah. uh, it was a great challenge, you know, the language barrier. We spoke English, but there was a bit of a language barrier there. But the culture were the main thing a massive different culture to where we see things in England and the way we do things. So um, again, another brilliant learning curve for us and one I really enjoyed. That's brilliant. Mike, just want to ask, we've got, um, uh, cause we're a local club. We, you know, we've got quite a few of the, the youngsters that, that listen to our podcast, especially some of the, uh, the Academy lads. Some of these lads are, are enjoying their rugby at, at grassroots level they're going to go on to university they've uh, and we've done some profiling on them to sort of find out where they want to go a few of them wanted to move on to professional levels some of them just want to play and enjoy but to all those that are playing at grassroots level in rugby today what would you hope that if you were here coaching the lads here what would you hope that they left Wimborne Rugby Club with and moved on to adult adult life, what would you hope that rugby teaches them, especially? Well, there's a lot, there's, there's a few things. Um, obviously, the, the the hopefully the the rugby that that gets coached and trained and played is one of a positive environment. They were ultimately they've enjoyed themselves. You know, um, you might argue that winning is enjoying and losing is not, but it, it's not that. It's 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 the way the positivity and the culture around, around Wimborne has been, hopefully, will give them a great experience to kick on if they should wish to to the next level, whether it's university or or a, or a senior rugby. Um, you know the 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 friendships, um, the you know you, when when you're out of rugby, like like say I am at the moment, um, you don't. You don't necessarily miss the match day experience, but you miss the the camaraderie at training, the the, the banter at, in the changing rooms, you know, the friendships that you make and the the experience that that you that you go through together. So whatever they do, hopefully they'll have great memories, great memories, with many friends, uh, the enjoyment of it, and they can go and do go to that to that next level. Um, you know the the coaching bit, the whether you're good or bad bit. The yeah, you, it's not the be and be all and end all, unless you know for, because most kids won't won't get to to the level um, that that professional is and stuff like that. So um, as long as I mean, I saw a thing in the paper this this week about a guy who's played with his seven sons. I don't think oh. you saw it. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I saw that as well. It's amazing, amazing story. He's 56. He's got seven sons. His, his goal was to play a professional um, game with them all. He had to wait till his youngest were 18. And they all played in the pack. Ireland, the surname was. They all played in the pack. Yeah, one to eight. Uh, in a level three game, which is wow. like that for me is rugby. That's for me is rugby, you know, kind of stuff. Um, I'm coached at the top level, but there's grassroots is the word. It, it, it lives and breathes and grows. So anybody coaching down there, you know, make sure it's a positive one. It's not about if you win at the weekend. And I know some coaches, some parents, 
it's the be all and end all, you know, it's not, it's not. And you're, you're now doing consultancy work as well, aren't you? From your, uh, you've got, um, I'll mention it now, your website's mikefordpc.co.uk. Um, you're working with, uh, what are you working with clubs? Are you working with individuals to, to mentor and, um, and coach? Or are you hoping to impart your wisdom or are you hoping to do coaching uh, on more of a, a one-to-one level? Yeah, all all the above, really. Um, so I've I've <laughs> I've got no further, to be honest, than Joe at Doncaster, George at Leicester, <laughs> and Jacob at Great Well, well as far I've as had clients, a few contacts. As as clients go, they're pretty high. <laughs> but I've I've had a few contacts, and we and I've had a few Zoom calls uh, with individual coaches, uh, mainly on defence. Um, I've had a couple on attack and basically helping them. Um, ideally, guys, I'd like to be involved uh, in a club that's in a competition um, with a very young coach, for example, or, you know, who I could mentor along the way. Um, but I, I know I've done a lot of traveling and I've been away a lot of, I, I want to be home every night kind of, kind of things, or maybe away one, one or two nights, but not too, not away too often, you know, kind of stuff. So, um, when 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 you look at where I live in the northwest of England and um, rugby union clubs, there's not too many of them mm. um, who, who who are looking for that type of men- mentorship. So then, so then you're looking at going maybe back to rugby league again. Um, there's quite a few opportunities. I'm meeting a club tomorrow to discuss something like that. Um, how can I help? You know, I've been away for 20 years. How can I help? Because um, rug- rugby league is pretty much, I see everybody doing the same thing. Um, can a rugby union coach now come back in like league did with union and see it from a different pair of eyes? Um, and also, I've done it. Um, I've done a few talks um, on things like leadership, you know, um, coaches, you know, uh, and then them sort of environment type talks, which I enjoy too, you know. Because um, it's it's not rocket science. I, all I do is, all I do is say my experiences. This is this is where I was successful. This is where I failed because of these reasons. This is what I learned. Uh, where are you in your stage of your? I did one for Burberry the other day. Managers, um, how to how to they would how to how you deal with staff and things like that. You know, um, so that was quite interesting. You know, how do I how do I drop players? you know, kind of stuff, what happens there, kind of stuff, how do you give the players bad news, so how do they give the staff, how, when they're not up to standard, what do you say to them, and all, all them things, and I just do it from a rugby analogy, you know, um, so I enjoy them things, but um, yeah, uh, the, the three boys, like I said earlier, keeping me busy. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, look, I think we're going to have to call time on it, which is such a shame, Mike, it's been fantastic listening to you, Um especially your talk um yeah around being able to operate in in times you've you know you said you know thinking correctly or acting correctly or clearly under pressure um you talked about learning from from losses um and just one thing you stuck which really resonated with me when we were talking about losing losing a game losing points or whatever 
you said when you came in, you spoke to, you know, teams when they made a loss and actually you put it so simply, they were just better than you on the day. And, and there you go. Next time, be better than them. Don't hang it, get hung up on it. Really, really like that. What do you think, Jane? Yeah, Mike, for me, amazing, amazing to talk to you, you know, almost a bit starstruck sort of thing, but it's uh, just some of the stuff you've said has really stuck with me from a from a coaching point of view. And to be honest with you, you know, I'm looking forward to putting some of the stuff you've said into practice and wish you best of luck with your your new stuff that you're doing and everything like that. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Yeah, I think for me, lads, it's been a great... I love these talks because I genuinely want to help. You know, I've got all this experience. I just genuinely want to help people along the way, whether it be defence attack or, or, or a leadership, whatever. I just want to... And I'm not one who, who goes out and, and, and you know, um, this is the way you do things, you know, kind of stuff. I'll go, this is my experience. And... I do it with my lads now. This is what I did. It doesn't mean it was right. It doesn't mean it was wrong. Um, but I'm trying to give them a different way of looking at things, potentially, you know. I'm not bothered if they don't take the advice, you know, kind of stuff. It, You know, the men make their own decisions and stuff. So, And I just want to generally help people become better people, but obviously with, with a rugby head on as well, better coaches. Uh, no, I don't think you could have a better head on, in all fairness. No. I really don't. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. Um, just going to say then, Jay, glad you had a good holiday and didn't get too burnt. Great to be back. Um, Mike, it's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you very much. And to everyone, Thanks, that's listening, everyone that's listening, you're all part of the team because we don't do this on our own. Um, if you get our podcast or you follow us on social media, subscribe, uh, drop us a like. Until next time, be more rugby. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, guys. Pleasure. Cheers, guys. Thank you.